Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So, jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Ah, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the New Wave Podcast. Daniel DiPiazza checking in with you here, and today is Throwback Thursday. That's right. It's time to go back in the Wayback Machine. I am very excited about today's episode. Today, we are bringing on just a, a legend in my mind, someone who has always been to me a source of the greatest wisdom when it comes to marketing and psychology and business and the intersection of all three uh, none other than the 18-time best-selling author, Seth Godin. And Seth is of particular inspiration to me because at the very beginning of my career, I mean, it must have been 2012, 2013, uh, really when things were starting to just, I, I just had the idea that I was it was possible for me to uh, do some sort of work online. I had written a few pieces that had gotten attention and I wanted to know how can I make this continue to work? And I asked Seth some questions and he gave me some very interesting answers. But I'll let the episode unveil what that has in store. Now, before you uh, before you go, make sure that you check out newwaveentrepreneur.com. This is where we're hosting the site. And uh, oftentimes the site or the, the apps don't always update right away or uh, we have you know, honestly, just better uh, ability to put content on our on our actual website. We can post videos, more links, and just more uh, of a rich experience. So make sure you check out newwaveentrepreneur.com and you can check out all the episodes on our site as well as uh, get some of our free guides that we have. We have a crypto guide. We have a productivity guide. Uh, we also have updates on all the workshops we're hosting and everything we have dropping uh, and more stuff coming as Q3, as Q, Q3, God, I'm already in the future, as Q1 wraps up and Q2 uh, comes forward. So make sure you check out newwaveentrepreneur.com and uh, make sure you are subscribing on whatever platform you prefer to listen to this on, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, et cetera, et cetera. Make sure that you subscribe and leave a comment and a review of the show. Why? Because it helps us to get better guests like Mr. Godin when they see that the show is performing and doing well. So uh, thank you so much for your time and enjoy this Throwback Thursday with none other than Seth Godin. This is the Rich 20-something Podcast with Daniel DiPiazza. Well, thank you for taking the time today. And uh, look, you know, it seemed obligatory, but it's really not. Uh, I really just wanted to start by by thanking you from, from the bottom of my heart. You know, four years ago, I, I wrote this article that got small, but but a meaningful amount of attention online for me. And the fact that people responded so well to it put this initial seed of confidence in my mind that I could be a writer. Um, if only I could get all my work to go viral, you know. And I and I um, I'm, I'm discussing this with you just so my audience knows. And so I emailed you, the guru, and I said, you know, Seth, I really want to know how to replicate this. And I was expecting you to come with some divine strategy, <laughs> something transcendent, you know. Uh, and instead, you told me not to try to do that again. And you said, don't try to go viral. Uh, you told me to write as if I were talking to only one person and to say something so meaningful that they couldn't go to sleep without telling at least one more person. And that confused me, but I want you to know that I truly took that advice to heart and I did something with that duck 
And that advice has changed my life and was wow. the single biggest piece of wisdom to influence my work. And it led me to write in a book that I'm extremely proud of. That's been very well received by the world. It's been translated in a bunch of different languages now. And so from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Well, I am privileged to know you. That's a great story. And thank you. You made my day. Thank you so much. Um, so do you mind if we just dive right in? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. All right, let's do it. So look, the creative process, marketing, your routines. You've written 17, I don't know, how many, I don't even keep track of the books anymore. Too many, too many. You've written a lot of books, 17 books. Um, is that right? Well, I usually say 18 bestsellers. Right. You okay. can say any number you want. I know because the book packaging, there's a lot of stuff, but you've written a ton of books and many are bestsellers on some list or another. Um, and so what I'm curious about is how has your voice and more importantly, your creative instinct changed over the years? You've mentioned before that you're a bit more reticent to take on new projects because you either like to go all the way in, go all the way to the end, or not even start it. And I'm wondering what factors play into your decision to commit to a project or leave it on the cutting room floor nowadays. All right. Well, first, thank you for taking the time. Uh, it, the I hear two questions, so I'll try to answer them one at a time. The first question is this idea of the dip. How do we choose to do a project? And almost everyone does is they start things because it's fun. And then when it gets hard, they quit. And we see this at the gym. We see this with business. We see this with careers. There comes a moment when it gets hard. And that moment, the dip separates the multitudes from the few. Because if only a few people get through the dip, that's what creates scarcity. That's what creates value. It's not until episode 100 that a podcast starts to get its steam. Yeah. Why is that? Because lots of people start podcasts, there are too many to choose from, but the number of podcasts that make it to episode 100 is small, which is why it's valuable. So my thinking is, don't start a podcast if you're not willing to make 500 of them. It doesn't make any sense to go through all the trouble and all the energy and all the effort and then quit when everyone else is going to quit. So that has been my mantra from the beginning. And I didn't have words for it before I wrote the dip, but the fact is that that is the way we set out on a path to get somewhere. Not to be a wandering generality, not to jump from interesting project to interesting project, but to commit to something, even though, or especially because, we realize that there is a dip up ahead. And that hasn't changed. What has changed for me is I need to be careful, because I have more opportunities than I ever did, to not be distracted by the urgent or the fun and instead remind myself that I don't get many more chances and I ought to focus on the important. Which leads, I think, to the second half of your question about how my practice has changed. And I think that particularly recently, it's getting to the professional practice that I seek, which is that it's more playful in the sense that it's not a matter of life or death. I don't have anything to prove to anybody and I've reminded myself of that. So I can say to myself, What's worth doing, not for uh, what that particular person wants, but for what I will be able to point back to later and say, I'm glad I did that. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And I hear you kind of have some, some, uh, some remnants of like Stephen Pressfield's do the work. And I'm wondering if you have a muse that you, that you try to invoke when you're doing your work. Well, I was thrilled to publish that book. Um, it's super important. Did you publish that? I did. It's one of my favorite books. Steve did not want to do a sequel to The War of Art. 
And um, I was gently persistent and we worked on it together and it was thrilling. Uh, so I recommend, I don't publish anymore, but I recommend Do the Work, War of Art, The Professional, lots of his other work on this. Uh, Steve and I have a different approach. I am a lot less mystical about it. <laughs> I am looking for the fear. I know it's not outside of me, it's inside of me. And if I can find it and it feels like the right flavor, then I know it's not real fear. It's fear that's a signal that I'm onto something. And if I don't see that, then I'm probably doing something that's too easy. So you're running towards the thing that you know is what you should be doing because your body and your mind are telling you, don't do this. You know, that's a signal to go. That's right. And be careful not to get confused because lava surfing or <laughs> fencing with lions and tigers, these are stupid things. And your brain is telling you they're stupid. But there's a difference between real fear and this pretend fear that is a glitch in our system that persisted after we got rid of saber-toothed tigers. And I feel like I can tell the difference. So that fear you feel just before you give a speech, that feeling is what you ought to be looking for when you do your work. Ladies and gentlemen, we want to see how long we can go into this podcast without Seth mentioning the word reptile brain. Actually, what I say all the time is the resistance. I, I <laughs> let Steve own that term. He deserves it. And I reference him almost every day. It's a great one. You know, you mentioned before that you went for about eight years teetering on the edge of bankruptcy and trying to create this work, playing the game until you ran out of money. And that's, that's kind of a romantic picture. But in the real world, you have Helene, you have your kids. And, and how does the very real possibility, or I'd even say inevitability of failure, impact the quality of the creative work that we do as artists? Does that stress of having to make it sometimes affect the quality that we put out? Well, I think we got to be really clear about what failure means. Uh, you know, I've been to Kabira in Kenya. I've been to lots of little villages in India. I've been to parts of the U.S. Midwest. And failure there means nobody's going to eat. Failure there means someone might die. I don't think most of the creatives listening to this actually have that kind of failure on the 24-hour horizon. We would like to amp it up in our head, but it's just not true. So let's be honest with ourselves about what we mean when we talk about failure. For me, yeah, I was teetering right on the edge. But if I failed, I was going to have to give up and get a job as a bank teller. I wasn't going to starve to death. And it would be embarrassing. It would be humiliating. But I wasn't going to die. And if you find yourself catastrophizing, figure out if that catastrophizing is fuel that helps you do better work. And if so, have at it. Catastrophize all you want. Or if it's paralytic, if it's paralyzing you, because if it is, well, then cut it out because you're not really that close to a catastrophe. Yeah, I think that a lot of times, too, when we kind of examine our fears and we because all the fears stem from the idea that at some point we might die. And if I don't do this right, I'm going to die. But, you know, looking around me, I live in Santa Monica right now and I can't find one person that's on the edge of actual death if they don't succeed with their daily work. Bingo. It definitely, it definitely gives some, um, some, it's soothing to know that as an artist, at least, at least the people who are listening to this, we know that we can do the work and we can fail. And there's a difference between failure and failing, right? It's not the same thing. It's not. And you know, the, the other thing about this daily work mindset that you brought up, which is so valuable is the single best way to actually fail is to make all your daily work mediocre because you're afraid. 
If you do enough mediocre work in a row, you're definitely a failure. So the easiest way to make sure you're a failure is to freak out and do mediocre work. The right way, if you're going to make art, if you're going to change people, if you're going to lead, is to do things that might not work, to do things that are human, that are transparent, that are vulnerable, that are real. But if you do those things, you're dramatically increasing your chances that in the long run, you're going to be glad you did the work. This actually brings me to another question I was going to ask later, but it seems to tie in very well. A lot of the things, a lot of the, the successes that we see, especially online because everyone has their own megaphone, seem so seem so quick and seem so seem so effortless from the outside. But I'm my my guess is that a lot of the people who we see who are doing the best work, we're noticing a disproportionate amount of uh, success on their part because they're shooting ninety eight times and they're hitting two. I was talking to Chris Brogan a couple of days ago, and that's what he said. He's like, you know, I'm on my tenth book. And none of them has done as well as my first one, but the only things you're seeing are my wins. And I'm wondering if that's the case with most successful artists. Except for the ones that are unbelievably lucky, of course. I mean, Pablo Picasso painted 10,000 paintings yeah, and only a hundred of them were world-class. So after you've tried 10,000 times, get back to me and let's see how many of them, <laughs> you know, because if you can hit a hundred out of 10,000, that's really going to matter because the fact is it's not like the tonight show where everyone tunes in every single night. And if you have five bad shows in a row, they're going to go away forever. The fact is most of us are putting our work into a giant swamp and only some of it swims and the stuff that sinks, people don't even remember. You know, I'm look, I'm looking at, at your book. Is it your first one? Rich 20 mm -hmm. something? First one. Congra yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Right. Now you have the bad news, which is your first book was a hit, <laughs> which is going to make it really hard to write the second book. But it, didn't get written in a week or a month. It got written in a lifetime and you left out all the stuff you learned and wrote that wasn't useful, right? Yeah. And that's how we do our work. We leave out stuff, we highlight the stuff that works, and then we do it again. I read a, um, an anecdote about Picasso. I'm not sure if it's true, but they said that a piece of paper in Pablo Picasso's hands is worth more than a piece of paper in the U.S. Treasury. Well, I would think the same thing is true for you because all they can print on a piece of paper is, what, $20. Very true. <laughs> um, you know, this is interesting too because now as we're, as we're kind of like, as, as social media is becoming a bigger and bigger influence in the way that many people live their lives and you kind of being the father of permission marketing, what I'm seeing now is I'm seeing a new industry that's being built, or not even a new industry, just a reemergence of an old industry being built on the ashes of interruption marketing. You know, you probably don't go on as much as most people do, if at all, but you'll see the news feeds are crowded more than ever with oh, pitches, yeah. and promotions, and in some cases, just desperate hype, man. And I'm just wondering, how can marketers who want to reach their audiences, but don't want to scream, stand out with all that? All right. Well, I, I think it's premature to call it the ashes. This is like Dracula. I mean, he goes <laughs> to bed every day, but he comes out every night. The single easiest way to make money in media is to sell ads to impatient, wealthy marketers that can't do the hard work of earning permission. Mm. That's been true my whole life. That by the time the marketer realizes she's in trouble and she has five or $10 million to spend, she says, well, yeah, I could go spend three years during a permission asset, but what do you got for me today? And if you got something, they'll buy it. I don't approve of it. I don't think it pays for itself. I think it's sloppy and lazy, but there's an infinite market for it. The opportunity, if you don't want that, 
involves having the empathy to see people for who they are, having the patience to make something that's worth making, and then having the insight to create something remarkable that people choose to talk about. So I run this online seminar called the Marketing Seminar, and it is transformative. And we, we're just finishing one up that lasted 100 days. We're doing another one in a week or two. And what we teach people is that the best road is the long road, and that the real problem they have is not that they don't know how to market, it's that they don't have the patience and the humility to market. And selling people on patience and humility in 2017 is not easy. That everywhere you look, there are people dancing around who say they don't believe in patience and they certainly don't believe in humility. But that's all short term. And the long term win goes to somebody drip by drip by drip, day by day, who builds something worth building. You know, I'm up to blog post 7,000. And the first 50, 60 blog posts, maybe 10 people, 20 people, 30 people read. And you show up and you show up and you show up and you're generous as you can be. And sooner or later, it looks like you're an overnight success. Is it our job as marketers, as, as the marketers who understand permission and the marketers who are in it for the long game, is it our job to help repair some of the damage that's been done by and has continued to be doing by the hype? Oh, I think that's uh, the only way that we're going to have a shot. That if you think about all, you know, if you want to open a chemical plant in Buffalo, New York, home of Love Canal, you got a lot of trust building to do. And if you want to meet your spouse in a bar, you got a lot of trust building to do. And if you want people to open your email, again, you got a lot of trust building to do. When I started Yo-Yo Dine, we had a 77% open rate for the emails we sent and a 35% response rate. Wow. Because we were fishing in a place where no one had poisoned the water. And that opportunity comes along every day. You just have to go to new places and earn trust. But the selfish marketer goes in and screws it up. Every time someone builds a new social media platform, every time someone builds a new search engine, the selfish marketer, the hacker, the hustler figures out a way to short circuit it on their own behalf and wreck it for everybody else. Yeah, this is a hard concept for a lot of people. It's so simple, but it's, it's difficult because you have to think about a lot of people now being born and that are that are understanding what marketing is are millennials and they're we're in this unique position where we're the last generation to be born right before the world wide web took off and so a lot of people now are seeing how quickly technology has grown and we're just associating the fact that technology is growing quickly with the idea that everything we do should also be with the same amount of speed and so it's it's difficult for young people to understand the the value of a permission-based asset because we don't have the long-term uh that long-term scope you know it's like you want to take a supplement but they haven't done any studies on it we don't know the long-term effects and so i think it's hard for people who aren't who haven't been doing this for a few decades to really see the scope of the effect that they'll have not only on their own business but on the market as a whole when everybody is just reaching into the cookie jar over and over again yeah i think it's a great point and that's one reason why I've been going out on a limb proposing to people that they focus on the smallest possible audience, not the largest one. And that goes back to the email that correspondence you had with me years ago. If you can obsess about the smallest market that you can live with, then over time that market's going to organically grow. But if instead you are seduced by all the, you know, BuzzFeed business insider nonsense, 
that you need to be big today, get bigger, stay home, you're going to make all the wrong shortcuts going after all the wrong audiences. And it's almost certainly not going to work. Yeah, I definitely agree. And by the way, I'll be signing up for the marketing seminar as well, because why not? Well, we're lucky to have you. Thank you, sir. Um, let me see. Okay. I don't know. You know, one of the things I think is interesting about your work is that you don't really have a lot of, it's not your, your books aren't really how to, and I admire that because you don't really give instructions. It's kind of like dating advice. You know, I remember I used to read all these articles on how to pick up girls when I was a teenager and they'd say, my first thought would be, okay, just give me the pickup lines, right? Your work right. has no pickup lines. Uh, there's no, there are no hacks and it's almost, I'd say it's driven by a philosophical approach to not only marketing, but how humans connect with each other. And one of my favorite philosophers, Alan Watts, says that it's the duty of philosophers to speak the unspeakable, to F the ineffable. And I'm, I'm just wondering, with all the ideas you've been putting out into the world, what are some of the things that you're still wrestling with trying to express that you haven't been able to formulate into a book or you haven't been able to talk about yet? Um, well, I'm glad you noticed that about my books. I used to be a book packager. I did 120 books uh, in 10 years, a book a month. And a lot of them were almanacs and how-to books. So I love those books. I know how to write those books. And I have intentionally not written those books because I realized that in the age of the internet, we now have an unlimited, infinite supply of tactics, an unlimited, infinite supply of how-to. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to use a new camera the other day. And of course, the first match was a YouTube video. And it took them two and a half minutes to tell me something they could have put in one line of text. <laughs> So we're not getting better necessarily at sharing the insight, but the, the amount of insight in the world is infinite when it comes to how-to. For me, the thing I've been wrestling with for the last five books, the thing that I cannot find the magic sentence or page or song to eliminate is how to get people past their false fear. That that false fear leads us to so many bad outcomes. It pushes us to leave behind the other, to be xenophobic, to not care about people who don't look like us. It pushes us to be ungenerous, to not put our best work in the world. It makes us neurotic and anxious and costs us sleep. And it does more and more and more negative things. And the fact is, I'd like to help it go away. And it turns out, I think, that the answer is drip, drip, drip. That what I'm hearing from people is that me showing up every day, day after day, living, not just saying, but living what I'm talking about is helping people realize they got tricked by politicians and marketers into being afraid. And instead, they ought to be generous. It seems like that's something that maybe there isn't one book or one sentence to write. It seems like that is part, that's, that's Icarus, that's tribes, that's the dip. That's kind of all those things, but you, it, it takes more than a, a few paragraphs to think about that, you know? That's right, because they're not how-to books. Yeah. They're books that get right to our own narrative. And what I'm trying to do is help people rewire their narrative. And so we're able to do that in high tension environments like the alt mba people discover it when they do outbound outward bound when they're at a summer camp when they're 12 that acting it out is the single best way to communicate to your brain that it might be wrong that makes a lot of sense and it it just it what really um 
excites me is that I think the true thought leaders are people who can bridge the gap between disciplines where there isn't necessarily an obvious connection or where there is one, but most people are scared to, to talk. I mean, the things that you're describing really, I mean, yeah, you're a marketer and, and you know, you've had a lot of success in that area and people know you as that, but really I, I see you more as a, as a leader for social change with marketing as an instrument, but that's not something that's specific to business. Exactly. But business gets me in the door. Right. Business gets you in the door. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about data with you and, and social media and things like that. The annoying things, uh, social media and, and data driven analysis are the way that a lot of businesses or all businesses now kind of are looking at their, at their success or their failure. And there's this obsession with stats. You've sent out a few different blog posts about this. You sent out one recently, which, uh, which I read the other day is something about check half as many times and do twice as much about it. And I'm wondering what you meant by that. Well, you know, the checking, if you remember when you were seven and you cut yourself and you put a bandaid on it, checking on how it was healing was fun. Of course, it made it heal slowly, but you're just like lifting up the bandaid and looking at it and things. That's not making you better. That's just re, I don't know, rehashing the injury. It's just reassuring you. So what the social media companies have done, because we are the product, not the customer, is turn us into people who check. And that checking supports them. It gives them traffic. It leads to us boosting things. It's good business. But the checking doesn't make us better. What makes us better is doing something about the, what we found out. And if you're not doing something about what you found out, then why are you bothering to find out? What's the point of knowing the number if you're not going to do anything with the number? Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things where it's also a moving target. And I think social media, I mean, they're really smart. They're getting to the point now where things are even more ephemeral. They have things that only last 24 hours, things that last five hours, and you have to keep updating them and you feed yourself into this machine and you're not, you're not the, the customer. You are the product, right? Exactly. And Anil Dash pointed something out that still to this day startles me. Back in November, when they were building the election ticker at the New York Times, they knew it was going to be heavily visited. And someone on their team put in a little dial that looked like it was on a, uh, a nuclear power plant kind mm. of thing. And that dial twitched left, right, left, right, left, right, about two or three times every five seconds, implying that the Times was getting new data every five seconds. <laughs> but in fact, the Times was only getting new data every few minutes. The twitch was fake. And it's hard to imagine uh, the revered New York Times intentionally putting fake information on its site, but they did. And that's what social media does. Fake numbers, twitching back and forth, because you know maybe you can see a trend if you check Google Analytics every two weeks or Facebook every three weeks. But checking it every day, there's no trend there. I mean, look at my blog that I have a little... Uh, uh, a flare on my blog that lets people easily share it. And it turns out a couple of days ago, I did a post that got shared on Facebook uh, 1,100 times, another one 812, another one uh, 946. Today's post got shared 101 times, the lowest I can ever remember. Now, is that a message that I'm a horrible writer as of now? <laughs> right? Well, no, it just means that it's after the July 4th weekend and people are tired of sharing my stuff 
and I'll be back tomorrow. That's all it means. I didn't even need to know the number. <laughs> thus, no comments, you know, thus, uh, thus the fact that you're not on social. But then again, I think about that and I think that, you know, a lot of people will look at you and they say, this guy is an OG and he's been doing this for a while. And as a new entrepreneur, there's no way that I could stay out of the fray like this. You know, I need to be in social media or it's not going to work otherwise. And do you think incredible work and, and a small loyal following is enough to make a dent these days? Or should all beginning entrepreneurs just use every tool, you know, at her disposal to, to get the message out there? Well, we got to be really clear about what a dent means. You know, there are 7 billion people on the planet. 98% of them have never heard of me. Have I made a dent? You know, what does it actually mean to make a dent? Has George Clooney made a dent? It's not clear when you're battling with infinity what it is you're talking about. It seems to me that if you're a corporate coach, five clients is plenty. So if you only need five clients, no, you don't have to be on Twitter. Uh, It seems to me that if you run the best barbecue rib joint in Shaker Heights, Ohio, you don't need to be known far and wide. You just need to be known by 1,000 true fans in Shaker Heights, Ohio. That would be plenty. So let's start by not fooling ourselves about what it means to make a dent. And then the second half of it is back to the dip. Doing a mediocre job on lots of social media platforms helps nobody but the social media platforms. You mentioned Chris Brogan earlier. When Chris showed up on the scene, uh, he told me that his goal was to move up the Ad Age 100 list of most important business blogs. And the way he did it was by tweeting better than anyone in human history. (laughs) If you at messaged him, he got back to you. If you asked him a question, he answered it. He was constantly on the cutting edge and building really generous stuff. At the same time, he wasn't doing amazing work or maybe any work on Pinterest, MySpace, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. He wasn't there because the goal is not to be everywhere. The goal is to be somewhere, to be somewhere where you would be missed if you were gone. And if you are fooling yourself into thinking that you need to be everywhere because otherwise they'll be talking about you behind your back, just be glad they're talking about you. And don't worry if it's behind your back (laughs) because that's not your job. Your job is to make something worth talking about, not to listen to what everybody says about it. So are there are there metrics that we should be paying attention to? I mean, I guess if social media, you, if you want to be the best at it and you go and do that, then those are metrics to look at. But what what should the should the person who runs the best rib joint uh, or who who only needs five clients? What are the metrics that they should be looking at to, to at least because I, I feel like the reptile brain needs something to check on? Well, I don't know what it was doing 20 years ago. The uh, for me, it's would you be missed if you were gone? If you whisper, who is listening? If you say to the people who care, I have a new thing, how many people say, please tell us what it is? That your goal is to be trusted. Your goal is to have people care about you. Your goal is not to be noticed. That's that's huge because, I mean, I think within the past three or four years, um, just as millennials have, I think, become full functioning members of society, has has there been this huge shift to the this metric of attention, which is a rather empty metric because it doesn't mean that you're doing well. It doesn't indicate success of a business and you can't sell it as an asset, but it's something that we all judge ourselves against. 
Yeah, I mean, here's a good question. If you could be a Kardashian, would you? Depends right? on which one. <laughs> any of them, right? So on a financial return basis, sometimes they make a few million bucks. But on a basis of the way you feel about yourself, about your prospects for the future, about the way you spend your day, do you want to do that? Because they won. They won social media. They beat the game. Do you, right? do you want to win that game? Because if you do, you have to be a Kardashian. But that's, is that the outcome you are seeking? Uh, man, I was, I was reading this, this really uh, pithy, like uh, just up, like an op-ed article about how it's insane that we're following the Kardashians, which is really just linked to their father, Rob, who's famous because he defended OJ, who's famous because he murdered someone, supposedly. And it's just like, man, what, why are we spending all this really hum, human capital? This, this energy that we're spending is actual it's human potential that we waste on these things that aren't really moving us forward, but are kind of like mental popcorn. That's right. And popcorn's fine, but only at the movies. Yep. So I guess the, the bow I would wrap on this box is this. Yes, the lizard brain wants you to be distracted. The resistance wants you to have a dashboard that makes you feel badly every day. Facebook and others want you as their product to be ever more engaged in producing ever more stuff that they can put ads next to. All of that is true. That's not the question. The question is, will you choose to matter? Will you choose to do some work today that the dashboard doesn't care about, but a human somewhere will remember for a long time to come? That's awesome. I wanted to talk a little bit about your work over the years and personal struggles and maybe some of the downsides of, of some of the upside. Um, I've heard in a few interviews, you talk about the, the one-to-many relationships that thought leaders have with their tribes. And, and sometimes, and this is my interpretation, by the way, but you seem a little bit exasperated that you're still having to spend so much time promoting these very simple ideas in your books, yet people are really asking basic questions to prove that they've missed the point. And I'm wondering if, A, this does annoy you because I would get annoyed, and B, this is a really important question. How do we encourage people to find the answers to these questions for themselves and think for themselves rather than always reaching out to thought leaders like you or like me hoping for a magic bullet? I, I don't think I'm exasperated. Uh, I, am, I wake up every morning unbelievably grateful for how lucky I am for the platform that I've had. It's impossible to teach somebody who is not enrolled in the journey. And so it is frustrating when people who aren't enrolled in going where I am going show up, stand on one foot, fold their arms and say, okay, teach me in one minute everything I need to know to be a millionaire. Well, I never promised I was going to do that. And I think being a millionaire is overrated. And no, I can't do it in one minute anyway. So what those people have identified to me is that it's not for them. And I wish it was for them because I care about them, but what I have is not for them. And if I can figure that out early, then I won't frustrate them or me by thinking that they're on this journey. But there are other people who show up who haven't been keeping up since 1998 when I started writing this stuff. And it's a privilege to be able to say, well, read this and watch this and read this and read this and then check back with me. What often happens, because we live in a post-literacy world, is people go away and don't come back because they don't want to read. They just want to see the short version. You know, The fact is that the mobile version of every site is dumber than the web version, and the web version of every idea, with a few exceptions, is dumber than the book version. Interesting. Uh, the, 
the exceptions are places where hyperlinking comes to the fore and where video is used properly to create interactions. But if all you've done is dumb it down to reach more people, it's hard for me to see how you can also expect that it will change more people. That what we need to do to change people is create tension, and tension is created with peer pressure and with the impact of ideas that won't let us go. Yeah. Popular is not the same as important. There you go. Yeah. I'm wondering this too, and this is something that I've dealt with, and and now it's a new thing that I've been talking with my tribe about, and I'm wondering, have you ever been depressed on the journey? Like actually depressed? Uh, I know people who have wrestled with depression, and I would never, ever use that word to describe myself. Um, There are definitely days when it's tiring. There are definitely days when it's frustrating, when um, it feels like there's no forward motion. And I care so much about what I'm doing that those days hurt. But uh, I am super fortunate that depression is not part of my emotional vocabulary. That's great to hear. And I think that you are right. I mean, I think that we... It's almost a shame that we use the word depression as a, like a colloquial term now. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling a little down today. It's not the same thing as depressed. Yeah. I, you know, and I think that we can take politically correct language too far, but in this case, this is a true illness. We would, you know, there are people who are, you know, bleeding from a cut on their arm and there are people who are depressed and both of those things are real illnesses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And obviously I think that there's, um, there's a, there's a, a real hard line between the two, but I want to encourage anyone who's feeling just not depressed, but discouraged with their work. Um, well, actually you tell me what's the best way to get out of the slump. That is a great question. And the answer I am pretty confident is to change one person that if you can get one person to engage with your work, well, then all we're left with is a question of scale. If you can help one person see the world differently, then all we're left with is a question of scale. And questions of scale are very different than questions of self-worth. My guess is you can't get one person because your work isn't good enough yet. Okay, fine. Stop running around looking for people and start making better work and then start over. And so the artist who is stuck at the you know local crafts fair and isn't selling anything sitting there cursing the fact that they can't get a gallery, cursing the fact that art news won't write about them. Yeah, but there are people in the crafts fair and you're not touching them. So make a better painting. (laughs) And if you can make a painting that's good enough that it moves someone, now you have a different problem, which is how do I move two people? And then you're on your way. Uh, You know, I was looking at, at the work of Richard Serra. Richard Serra has made sculptures that weigh as much as a million pounds. He didn't start by making a million pound sculpture that he sold for millions of dollars to Dia Beacon. He started with a bunch of junk that could have fit on your dining room table. But then his work got better and better and better, regardless of the fact that he wasn't making sales along the way. He had odd jobs until he figured out how to make a piece of work that people couldn't forget. That's hard, but it has nothing to do with scale. Is it a thousand times more satisfying to have a thousand true fans than it is to have one or two? Not even close. Not even close. That I remember the first 10 people who had their eyes light up when I said something that ended up working in the bigger world. And I'm grateful for blog reader number a million. But 
once you realize you can change a person, that is what you seek to do when we do this work. And it's priceless. It lends a lot of perspective to the long game. And I want people who are listening to really just really take a second to not just fast forward through this and say, where are the pickup lines? There are no pickup lines. This is the whole date. This is the thing, you know? Um, and I, th I think that one of the main struggles is that we're behind the computer so much and behind and we're in our, we're in our cave so much that it's really hard to, to actually see the human beings. You know, I, I'll refresh my dashboard and I'll see, oh, you know, a thousand people read this, but I won't think about the people when I see it. I'll just see the numbers and that's the problem. And so we need to start re, re kind of reminding ourselves and, and retuning our brains to remember that all these numbers are physical people with individual lives. And, uh, and that can help to really change your perspective and make your work more enjoyable because you realize how meaningful it is. Yeah, this is, um, on a regular basis, what I encourage, encourage people to do, there's a park in New York City called Union Square. And Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, they have a big green market. So on a typical day, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 people will walk through Union Square. And what I say to them is, get a bridge table, go to the edge of Union Square, set up the bridge table, sit down, put a little sign on your uh, table, and offer for free, the kind of interactions you're busy trying to sell people uh, and see what happens. Can you, in three hours, coach some people? Can you, in three hours, help people with whatever it is you seek to do, your financial planning, short story writing, anything? Looking people straight in the eye. Will they come sit at this bridge table with you and enable you to interact with them? Okay, if that works, Go back the next week and see if you can sell it for five bucks. Because if you can't make it work in Union Square, and if you can't get someone to pay you five bucks, why on earth is your beautifully crafted website going to magically get you a following of 100,000 people? It's not different people. It's the same people. But you got to look folks in the eye and realize what it is to sell someone your idea and to watch it land and to change them. Yeah, I think I think... One, a fun way to put this in perspective is to look up different stadiums around the world. You know, we cut our email list down by about two thirds and now it's, you know, we're around 55,000 people, which to a lot of marketers is big and to some it's small, it's inconsequential. But when I looked up how many people Madison Square Garden holds, it holds 21,000 people at peak. And I think, you know, if we can't get the job done with two and a half Madison Square Gardens, we're not doing it right. Bingo. Love that. <laughs> exactly. You know? Um, I imagine myself being in the center of the stadium. And if I can't get, you know, X amount of people to be interested in my work, I need to change the message. It's not their fault. Yeah. And the fault thing is don't even go there, but uh, you're right. And the, the difference is you have an even better sound system than Madison Square Garden does. <laughs> I, I, I gave a speech before a Minnesota Timberwolves game because I thought it would be interesting. Uh, it wasn't interesting. It was horrible because you're standing at center court. And, and, and everything you say, <laughs> yay, yay. And it's just going out into this chasm of people who don't care. You've got 55,000 people who would miss you if you were gone. And you can whisper to them. And you can do it with high fidelity. That is an extraordinary achievement. And it's a real privilege, too. Thank you so much. And I, I hope that um, other people see it the same way when they're building their tribes. I wanted to kind of crystallize things and kind of 
bring it home, but I wanted to talk um, quickly about, well, what you're doing with the alt MBA and, you know, you're, you're trying to change people and, and not just prove that they've learned something. It's not about um, scholastic achievement. And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the damage that's been done by the factory model of the school system and how millennials can begin to reprogram ourselves um, from the school systems and institutions that have shrunk our thinking. Well, schools were built public school based on the Prussian paramilitary model. They were funded by corporations that needed compliant 17-year-olds who would do what they said, sit in a factory and follow instructions for 12 hours. So if that's your dream, you're all set. Uh, For the rest of us, we have a problem, which is that compliance isn't worth very much now. Uh, The ability to listen to and follow instructions is worth less than ever. The question, will this be on the test, is completely worthless because there are no more tests. And anything that's worth memorizing is worth looking up. So all the stuff they taught you, all the stuff that got you an A, all the stuff that got you into a famous college, all of it is close to worthless. That as an accident, you also learned how to solve interesting problems, maybe. And you also learned how to lead, maybe. And those two things are all you've got. That's all we need from you. And if you didn't learn those enough, you need to go learn how to do them. You can learn it on your own. You can start a mastermind group. You could take a course from somebody else. But you got to figure out how to be in the world solving interesting problems. Because I got to tell you, my generation isn't going to take care of you. My generation is having trouble taking care of itself. <laughs> How does the Alt-MBA fit into that in terms of solving creative problems and shipping things? So the Alt-MBA is 30 days. It's virtual, 45 countries with, full, with a full cadre of coaches, 20 coaches, uh, and not very many students. Only 10% of the content is content, and 90% is experience. 90% is doing something. And it's those 90% that people remember. So I'm not in it. I don't have videos of me in it. It's not content-based. It's about the process of learning to see, of shipping regularly, of doing 13 projects, of doing group work, of video conferencing, uh, of working with coaches. And what happens by the end, we have a 96.5% completion rate, which is 30 times higher than a typical course. And at the end, people look in the mirror and go, I can't believe I got that much done. And that's the way we want them to feel. And they end up feeling that way for months or years afterwards, that once you've done something for a month, you realize you can do it that way. And it creates a whole new set of habits that transforms the way you do your work. You know, that reminds me of, I was talking to a friend um, and he, earlier in his life, in his teens, he was in a rehab program. And he said that when he was in the program, they made him do these really menial, very detail-oriented tasks. Like for instance, he'd have to clean out the inside of his toothpaste cap just right. They would come along and check it. And he did all these small, insignificant tasks because at the center, they knew that when he got home, he'd shrink back down to the level of his training and probably forget some of it. And it just reminds me that if you do a lot of work in a short period of time to show yourself it's possible, even in the real world, when you're not in this type of high, you know, high hyper growth environment, you're still going to be able to, because you've stretched yourself, do a lot more than you would have done before. That's right. You can't forget it because you did it. It wasn't something aimed at you. You actually were the creator of it. 
What's an obvious change happening in, in marketing or business or, or tech that you can see clearly, but people aren't talking about yet? All right. Well, people are talking about the fact that Amazon has jumped across a chasm and will be the deliverer slash seller of most non-differentiated consumer items going forward for the rest of our lives. So that means that if you sell something where you need to be found, you will probably be found and the transaction will go through someone who isn't you, which puts even more pressure on us to be unique and irreplaceable and worth seeking out. Because otherwise, you know, if you sell bath salts or paper or uh, magic markers, you don't have a way to differentiate yourself in the Amazon results. And so you suddenly disappear. And so the end of retail, which is a 500-year-old tradition, is going to be a big, big deal. And then I would say the second thing is that the smartphone has trained your generation to care about connection about 100 times more than it cares about stuff. That the average uh, 18-year-old today, according to data, would rather have a smartphone than a car. And that's a huge shift. And the decrease in consumption is going to be good uh, on balance. But if you are the maker of stuff, you're going to have to think hard about how you add connection to part of what you make because connection is what people truly crave. That's really smart. Um, it's super smart. And I, you know, now that I think about it, I know a lot of, I mean, this could be a local thing, but I, I almost get teased uh, more than, more than praised for having a car in Los Angeles. People say, why would you have a car? I mean, you know, the traffic is horrible here, but the idea is that people don't feel the need to be attached to big possessions. We're not, we're not buying houses anymore. We're not, um, we're getting married a lot later and having kids later or not at all. We do have a little bit of a, um, a detachment from, from a lot of the things that generations of the past thought were must haves. That's right. Because it turns out those things were just placeholders because we couldn't have the thing we really wanted which is connection. Yeah. Um, some fun stuff to wrap us up. And these are questions I got from my audience. Okay. Here's one. Uh, this is from John. You don't consult. You aren't speaking 340 days a year like Tony Robbins. You're not the overlord of 80 companies like Branson, and you don't sell much to readers of your blog. How does Seth Godin make money? Um, well, it's a two-part two answer. The first part was I set out years ago not to make money because I did okay at the beginning of the internet. And so I'm trying to make a difference. But it turns out the more I make a difference, the easier it is to make money because there are certain things I do that are quite scarce. Mm. And if someone wants those things, they choose to pay for them. But there is no long-term plan for me to maximize my income. If I was going to maximize my income, it wouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Um, and I think the lesson that people can take away from that is not, you should be Seth Godin. What you can take away from that is that if you can think about over serving the smallest possible audience, it's entirely possible you won't have to make worry about making a living because you'll be so busy making a difference. That's really important. And it just, I mean, it's it's long game. And a lot of people will well, some people will hear that and say, oh, well, you know, Yo-Yo Dine and Squidoo did so well and he sold them and that's why and he can do whatever he wants now because he sold those companies. But I think the longer the the actual takeaway is that you have more opportunities now than you had then because of the work you're doing. It's true. And 
I make a fine living. I'm not complaining. It lets me do the philanthropy I want and to not have to worry about whether something's going to succeed or not. And Wall Street has taught people that more is the answer. But I know a lot of people who took their companies public and a lot of people who went for more. And I have to tell you, not one of them has told me that that was the right thing to do, that they were happiest when they were doing enough, not when they were trading down so they could have more. I want to also bring to everyone's attention that Seth um, has is part of um, a new series of of basically social change, a new a new program for social change at the New York Civic Center, um, which I've applied for, and I think it's a, a really incredible program um, aimed to do some great work. And you can hear about it on his email list. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but it sounds pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it's a place called Civic Hall. It's run by Micha Sifri. Uh, I'm letting Micha decide who's in it and what it is. I'm not there all the time, but he's trying to uh, organize and amplify community activists who are doing great work. And when he whispered that I might be able to pitch in, I said, put me down for 11. So I'll be there as often as I can, uh, but check out Civic Hall in New York and you can see all the details. Great. Well, hopefully I'll see you there. Um, oh, you don't drink coffee or alcohol, but you like to entertain. Uh, what is your famous oatmeal honey vodka recipe? Uh, you buy a bottle of $20 vodka, you buy a pound of good quality oats, just raw oats, and a half a jar of honey, and you mix them all in a bottle and you leave it there for, I don't know, five days, shaking it every day, and then you filter it through a sieve and you put it in the freezer. I'm told it's very good, but I've never <laughs> tasted it. I'm told, well, you know what? Never trust a cook who doesn't taste his own food. If you wanted to act that way, that's fine. You don't have to have any, but I'm told it's really good. No, it sounds great. Um, last question, baldness by choice or design? Um, years ago, when my dad first got sick, I shaved my head in solidarity with him. And it turned out to be a good branding move as well. Um, but the reason I did it was uh, in his honor. You are officially the Tupac of marketing then. <laughs> Seth, thank you so much. Oh, it's a privilege. Thank you for the work you do. I know it's not easy to show up every single time. And on behalf of those who listen to you, thank you for doing that. Thank you so much. You just experienced the Rich 20-something podcast. Ah, well, there we have it, my friends. I hope that you enjoyed listening to today's episode as much as I enjoyed recording it for you back in 2017, that is. And uh, leave your questions for me on the blog. Go to newwaveentrepreneur.com, uh, check out the archive, and leave a comment on what you thought about today's episode. And uh, i really like to hear from you. You can also hit me up at New Wave Entre or Daniel at newwaveentrepreneur.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can follow me at Daniel DiPiazza on Instagram and follow the podcast on Instagram. Uh, it's at New Wave Entrepreneur Podcast. Let's see. I think those are all the, all the announcements for today. The water is warm. The tide is rising. So jump on in. Let's get ready to surf this new wave. Daniel, out. Out.